Are you disappointed? <laughs> this morning we're going to talk a little bit about disappointment. And, um, but before we do, I have an unrelated question for you. And that is, um, that wasn't it. Do you look up to the man who stands in the pulpit? Do you? Do you look up to the man who stands in the pulpit? You, you should. You should look up to the man who stands in the pulpit. Because I can tell you as a man who occasionally stands in the pulpit, that if you don't look up to the man who stands in the pulpit, we can see the tops of all your heads from up here. So if I see the tops of your heads, I'll just assume that you're praying or reading the Bible or tying your shoelaces or sleeping. Just be glad that it's only the Lord that numbers the hairs on the tops of our heads. Some folks keep them a little busier with that than others, just saying. Anyway, before my remarks, let us look to the one who numbers the hairs on the tops of our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the blessing it is to us and for your son, Jesus, and for all that you've done for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you'll teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name. So, so you've looked in the bulletin. You've seen this title I put in there, Disappointing God. Have you ever felt like you've disappointed God? Um. Not, do you think God is disappointed in you? That's kind of a different nuance and a different question. Um, And not, are we disappointed in God? Or are we disappointed in what God is doing? Because that's a different question too. Although that, as we will see in a little while maybe, uh, that sometimes plays a part into some episode in our life where we feel like we've disappointed God. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, what have I done? I've really done something that now I've disappointed God. Have you ever felt like that? On the one hand, disappointment kind of carries with it the element of surprise. And is God really surprised at anything? Is he? Um, a couple of pastors ago that were here, uh, and I don't know if it was original to him, he used to say something like, Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Clever, right? But in our time, in our lives, we do things sometimes and we feel like, I've disappointed God with what I've done or what I've said or something I should have done and something I should have said but didn't. Do our failures surprise him? Well, this morning, we're going to consider a couple of characters from the Bible who, in the story of their lives, did some things, or didn't do some things, that you would look at and say, wow, that, really dis- that must have been a big disappointment for God. Um, one of those characters is Peter. Impetuous, 
bullheaded, full speed ahead charge, Peter from the New Testament, one of the disciples. Two millennia before we knew what ADHD was. Simon Peter, right? Um, First one in, the first one to say something, the first one to charge ahead, and the first one to declare that Jesus was the Son of God, right? Among the disciples, anyway. Um, So impetuous Peter and Jonah, reluctant and rebellious Jonah. These two characters we're going to look at today. Um, But first, there's a lot of interesting, maybe coincidental, maybe not, uh, connections and possibly even parallels. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. First of all, where's Peter and many of the other disciples from? What region of of the area were they from? Do you know? Galilee, right? Yeah, the northern up section up near, near the Sea of Galilee, that whole region up there. Most of, a lot of the disciples were from up there. Guess where Jonah's from? Yeah, he's from that same area up there. Not exactly the same town or anything. Um, you know, Jonah's story, besides being in the Old Testament, besides being in the Bible for these people, Jonah may or may not have been kind of like a hometown hero to the to the area up there, that region up there where the many of the disciples are from. Um, now, it wasn't a real recent thing. Uh, in fact, as we'll see, we're going to consider a couple passages, and, and in one of them, in, in a couple places besides the one we're looking at, but Jesus refers to Peter as Simon, son of Jonah. And the, the, the formal title is, has to do with the fact that Peter's father was named Jonah. Not the same Jonah, obviously. There's 800 or so years in between. You know, it would be kind of the equivalent of being named for an ancestor that lived around 1200 A.D. for us, you know. Long, long time. But very intimately known to those people because of it being one of their prophets and a man who had a very famous story and, uh, and, and being in, in the Word of God. So um, let's take a look at the Gospel of John. Um, and we're going to turn to... Um, John 21. But before we get there, I'm going to read a little bit from John uh, 13. One of the interesting things I've noticed, I love the Gospel of John, one of my, if you can have a favorite book of the Bible, I think that would be it. Almost a third, or maybe about a third of the Gospel of John is devoted to that two or three day period uh, around Jesus's crucifixion. The, uh, the 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 week and the last of the of Passover and and the Last Supper and his crucifixion and his resurrection and and uh, then his meeting up with the but in those passages Jesus gives long long dissertations of 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 his disciples and our relationship between himself and and us and God and the Father and us and the Holy Spirit and us and so. There's long, long passages there, and about a third of the Gospel of John is devoted to all of that. But in, in chapter 13, um, Jesus is with the disciples at the Last Supper, and, um, and he begins to tell them that what's, about what's going to happen. He's telling them about the fact that he's going away, and they don't get it because he's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection and his eventual ascension back into heaven but 
the disciples are still kind of in the mode of expecting a, a, a triumphant political overthrow of the Roman Empire. They're still expecting the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament who was going to conquer and rule the world. They weren't expecting, maybe, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who was going to first come and suffer and, and redeem us from our sins. But in chapter 13, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Imagine being in Peter's place and hearing those words from your Messiah, your closest, your, your master, the Lord. And he's telling you, you're going to deny me. What do you think Peter thought? Well, we know the story, right? Um, the, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples these last you know, few things that he wanted them to know, very deep things that he wanted them to know. And um, he also, the, the different Gospels record some different details, but in Luke, it, the one detail that he, one of the details he records is Jesus telling them, do you remember when I sent you out and I sent you without any bag or without any extra sandals, without an extra tunic, without any extra money? And then weren't your needs supplied? And they said, yes. He says, well, now I'm telling you, take extra, take some, and make sure you have swords. Why? Well, imagine Peter's confusion because you know the incident in the garden. After the Last Supper, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, toiling in prayer because he knows this is it. This is the night before the crucifixion. The disciples are sleeping. Peter's asleep. Then when the guards come, the Pharisees, or the, 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 the guards, they had their own kind of little contingent, and Judas comes, and they're about to arrest Jesus. There's impetuous Peter there, pulling out the sword. Lord, should we attack? And wax off the servant of the high priest, if you don't want to mess with anybody, you know, <laughs> hits him. I don't know, who knows if he missed. He swung, cuts off the man's ear. Luke records that Jesus healed the man. Um, and here's Jesus telling him, put your sword back in the sheath. Imagine Peter's confusion. What is going on? He told us to bring swords. Now here's, this is our chance. Don't you think the Lord wanted them to have the swords for their own protection? Because he knew that they were going to have to scatter, right? That's what I think anyway. But imagine Peter's confusion and maybe his disappointment in what God is doing. And we know, the Gospels record it, that John, the disciple John, was a relative of, of, of uh, uh, the, the, the high priest, and, and, and he got into the little inner courtyard where they had a little fire going, and he, uh, he had Peter brought in as well. Peter, those are the only two that, that kind of followed at a distance. The rest of them just scattered. Um, and then you know the incident, of course, 
where Peter's questioned. You were with him, right? You're, you speak like a Galilean. And he denied knowing Jesus three times. And the roaster crew. And one of the Gospels records that Jesus, uh, Peter, uh, Jesus turned around and looked at Peter. Peter went out and wept bitterly because he disappointed God. Or at least he felt he did. Ultimately, this is uh, recorded for us in John 18, um, how Peter denied uh, the Lord three times. Then there's the crucifixion. And then there's the resurrection. And then there's the Lord appearing to his disciples. What do you think Peter felt like knowing that he denied the Lord? You ever feel along those lines? Um, By chapter 21, this is the last chapter of the Gospel of John, Peter said, I'm going to go fishing. Even though the Lord had been resurrected, even though obviously things aren't turning out the way he expected, they were going to be overthrowing the Romans any day now, right? But he goes back to his old old profession, and six of the other disciples go with him. Um, this is even after the resurrection. They just decided, you know, Peter must have thought, well, you know, I failed at that, so I may as well go back to that. You know, couldn't be a good disciple. I guess I'll just go back to being a fisherman. What about Jonah? I think Jonah felt like he disappointed God. If you want to look at it, in Jonah, the, God, uh, the book of Jonah is on, if you're looking in the uh, Pew Bibles, It's on page, I had it written down, yeah, there it is, 487. Um, That's in the Pew Bible. If you brought your own Bible, you're on your own. Um, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Why? Why did Jonah run? Well, the Assyrians, their capital city of Nineveh, they were pretty well known. The Assyrians were vicious people. At least the, the military was. They, the Assyrians were conquerors. And they weren't just conquerors militarily. When they conquered you, they pillaged. They ransacked. They did unspeakable, horrible things to the people that they conquered. The Assyrians were, were not just some superpower that moved in and took over. They, they made sure they, that you were completely humiliated, defeated, conquered, and worse. Think modern-day ISIS. See some of the stuff that they do over in the Middle East? All right, Not enough for them to just kill their, the ones they consider infidels, Christians and other Islamic sects. No, they got to put them in a steel cage and put them out in the low tide and let the tide come in and slowly drown them or, or pour gasoline on them and burn them or 
or something or bury them up to their necks and then do some bad stuff to their heads while they're sticking out of the sand. Vicious. Now, Jonah was aware of who these people were. And Jonah knew that those people were, were prophesied. He probably knew that there was prophecies that Assyria was going to be used by God to bring punishment to Israel. Israel that wasn't being faithful to God. Jonah probably knew all that. And so when the Lord says to Jonah, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me, you would think, hey, good, God's going to wipe these people out so we don't have to worry about them. But then he runs the other direction. Why do you suppose? Well, in chapter 4 we find out. Jonah wasn't afraid to go. He may have been afraid. They were pretty bad people. But he wasn't running off because he didn't think God was, they were good enough for God to save, he, although I'm sure he thought that. And he didn't run off because, because he didn't think God could save them. He ran off because he was afraid God could and would save them. Think about that. The prophet of the most holy God sent to a people who needed to hear his word. And he says, you know what? I don't want them to hear God's word. Now, where's Tarshish? Where's Joppa? Joppa's a coastal city. Joppa's actually going to come up later. Another neat little connection with Peter, believe it or not, um, in case you didn't know. But Tarshish, depending on which maps you look at, it's either it's a coastal city on the Mediterranean, almost to Spain, or maybe in Spain, modern-day Spain, but a long ways away. doesn't matter. What matters is Tarshish isn't where Nineveh is. It's the opposite direction, and it's far away. And, then, and Jonah's running. So here are these two characters. Peter, who, don't you know, felt like, He'd really let down the Lord. And Jonah, who's running. And both of these men, God is going to pursue. And we'll see why. We'll see how. Let's stay in Jonah for a little bit. Um, Jonah 1.4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw, cargo in, and threw the cargo of the that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain said to, came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. What are lots? Whatever it was for them, it was some sort of a game of chance. It was drawing straw, you know, whoever draws the short straw, uh, the, 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 the bag full of stones, black stones with one white stone, or, you know, don't think they had dice like we've got, but whatever it was, it was, it was something that they thought was by chance, but being superstitious thought that this chance lot would tell them who the guy at fault was. And you know what? They were right. 
because, not because of superstition, and not because of their gods that they worshipped. You know, they worshipped the sun god or the god of the sea or the god of the mountains or the god of the fish or whatever they worshipped. But because the one true God had his hand in it. Don't you know? And that's all part of God seeking out and pursuing this prophet that he sent on a mission. Now, God could have used another prophet, don't you think? Well, Jonah wasn't the only prophet in Israel. He could have said, all right, you're running away. Let's pick, you know, you know Joe over here and let him go to Nineveh or Bob or somebody. No. God wanted the, the prophet that he called to do this work. Same thing with Peter. Peter, we'll see, gets used mightily. You read the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, we're going to be there in a little while. Um, he could have picked one of the other disciples. He had 11 left to choose from after Judas, right? I mean, or 10 left after Judas, and if Peter denied him, he could have picked one of the other 10. But God wanted the ones that he called to do the work that he wanted them to. So Jonah's running away. God decides he's going to pursue him. What's the first thing? The big storm, right? That's part of God chasing after his prophet. And the casting of the lots. That wasn't just random chance. They thought it was. But, but that was God's doing. And what comes next? He said, I, I, I serve, when they asked him, who are you? What, what's, what's happened here? What do you... You know, why, did, why is this happening? For whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So then it says, the men were exceedingly afraid. They must have known what that meant. They worshipped all kinds of false gods. An asteroid fell and made a crater, so they worshipped the rock that fell out of the, universe, you know, out of the solar system, or you know, or they they worshipped the sun because it comes up, and they worshipped the moon, and they worshipped the different stars and planets, or they worshipped lions, bears. Oh my, they worship all kinds of you know animals and, and things, but now they're afraid. They must have known something about this God of the Hebrews. Even though, at that time, Israel was vacillating between worshipping the, the true God and worshipping false gods, there was still enough of a reputation. This is around 790 B.C., I think, something like that, if I had the dates right. Why have you, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of Yahweh, the Lord. When you see the Lord in all capital letters, that's that. Because he had told them. Then he said, what should we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Because the sea was growing even more tempestuous. And he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. See, Jonah's still running. All right, if I can't get the Tarshish, just drown me, and that'll be the end of it, and I still won't have to go to Nineveh. Right? Still running. But God is still pursuing. Right? So the men didn't want to do this, so they rode hard to return to land. They could not. Therefore, they cried out to Yahweh, 
God that he probably never talked to before. We pray, O Lord, do, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Jonah had his first Gentile converts. Well, maybe they were Gentiles. We're pretty sure they were Gentiles. Israelites weren't really well known for being seagoing, seafaring people. Then they feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, in case you're worried about what kind of fish or whale or whatever this was, don't waste a lot of time worrying, trying to figure out which ones had which digestive juices in its belly and how did what happened to his skin while he was in there and, and you know, all of that. I've had people say, well, you know, if it was this kind of a whale, he might have, you know. That's not even your first worry. Your first worry is how does he have enough breathable air for three days and three nights, right? Um, so it's a miraculous thing that the Lord did. Now, something I've noticed about miracles that God does. Have you ever noticed this? When God does a miracle, he makes sure you know it's him. He makes sure you know it's a miracle. Wasn't, Jonah wasn't like grabbed by the fish and, and the fish swam for five or ten minutes and puked them out onto dry land somewhere. You say, well, yeah, he could have survived that, any kind of fish. No, three days and three nights. Kind of like when Lazarus died and Jesus didn't go right away. How long did he wait? How long was Lazarus dead? Four days. Wasn't like Oh, Jesus, thank God you got here because we just put him in the tomb. Hurry, make it, you know. He wasn't just in the tomb for a few minutes. Oh, what a miracle, he got revived. Then you could kind of question it, right? Maybe he just fainted or whatever. Four days. Four days he's dead and sealed in a tomb. So Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. It's a miracle. Don't worry about what kind of whale it was. It may not have been a whale. Could have been the Loch Ness Monster for all we know. We don't know what it was. All right? This is God pursuing and seeking out this prophet who disappointed him. All right? When God does a miracle, he makes sure you know it's him. You look at chapter 2 in Jonah. Did, God, did Jonah know that was God? You bet he knew it was God. And if you read the whole of chapter 2, is Jonah praying, crying out to the Lord from inside this whale, fish, whatever it was. Okay? And you can see that a lot of chapter 2, it, it resembles uh, words from the Psalms and words from maybe Job. And um, one of the greatest verses is verse 8. Um, there's a couple different translations of this. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, is the way it reads in NKJV, the New King James. I like the old NIV. The new NIV has changed it a little bit, different editions. I carry one from around 1980. Um, and it's uh, those who cling to worthless idols forsake the grace that could have been theirs, or forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. And you, you, you wonder what Jonah's thinking about those guys he left up on the boat, praying to this God and that God, did Jonah get to see their, their conversion? Did he get to see them worshiping the true God? 
He didn't. He was down in the belly of the fish, whatever it was. All right? So he didn't even get to see the first uh, 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 converts of this mission that he got sent on that he ran away from. Interesting how God can use even things that are failures. Have you ever noticed that? That should be an encouragement. Sometimes you're in a place where you feel like, well, I've really blown it, I'm a failure, I should just give up. But sometimes God uses even that as part of his ministry through you. That should be an encouragement to you. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. Um, Meanwhile, we left the disciples. What's happening with the disciples? I told you we're going to be jumping back and forth. If you like to keep a bookmark in um, Jonah, we may be back and forth. But Gospel of John, chapter 21. If you're wondering why I have all these papers up here, it's because I try to print the passages out ahead of time because the print's really small in these few Bibles. And mine that I carry is a different translation. So, God seeks out even those who think they've disappointed God. We saw him do it with Jonah. Let's look at John, Gospel of John chapter 21. Here are the disciples, six of them, seven of them anyway, seven of the disciples. Uh, don't know where the other four are, but John the disciple adds this to his gospel. After these things, this is chapter 21, by the way, if you're in the Pew Bibles, it's page 574. Anyway, um, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, by the way. Um, and in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples are together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out, immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. What do you think Peter thought of that? I can't even fish anymore. Can't be a disciple, deny the Lord, can't be a fisherman, what am I going to do now? And it was common for them to fish at night with nets. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This isn't the first time this, something like this has happened, if you read the other Gospels. Um, they should have realized it. Easy for us to say, we weren't there. Uh, then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Um, so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. That should have been a clue. And I guess it was, because if you look, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, if you ever read that in the Gospel of John, that's code for John himself. He wrote the Gospel, and being modest, I suppose, he always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or often did. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, Peter, being the professional fisherman that he was, finished helping the disciples pull the net of fish into the boat and got everything squared away. No. Peter puts on his outer garment, where he removed it, and plunged into the sea. 
Where are you going? We got all these fish to pull into the boat. Nope. But the other disciples came in the little boat, it says little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits. Uh, That's about 100 yards. And Peter swam that and beat the boat. Peter swam that with a loose garment kind of wrapped around himself. Have you ever swum and swam, swim, swimmed in something loose-fitting or getting, you know, um, years ago I took basic, basic junior life-saving skills. I'm not a real strong swimmer, but enough to where I might be able to not drown myself, maybe much less save anybody else. But um, basically, they tell you if you've got something loose on, you, you, you can pull that off, you tie knots in the sleeves, and you can blow air into it, and you can float on it. I don't know if they did anything like that, but Peter had this big garment wrapped around himself, and he's swimming to the shore, you know, and uh, drags himself up onto the land. Um, and I've always found that very interesting. And if you look at where it says, now comes the other disciples, probably, it doesn't say, probably grumbling, Peter, should have been here helping us with the fish in the boat. No. Dragging the net with the fish, and as soon as they had come, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. So, they get there, Jesus already has a fire going, already has fish and bread on it for breakfast. You know, they didn't need all those fish, did they? I guess they needed some of them, but... Jesus shows them something there, doesn't he? Jesus can fill their nets with fish. Surely he can fill their ministries. Weren't they sent to be fishers of men? Yeah, but notice here the stark difference of toiling with and without the power of the Lord. See what the Lord's showing us there? Okay. Um, So this is Jesus pursuing and seeking out at least this one disciple. These disciples, they all ran away, didn't they? And Peter was the one who denied him. So it says, now this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, chapter 21, verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Notice how formal the Lord is in addressing him. Who gave Simon the nickname Peter? It was the Lord, wasn't it? But here he doesn't call him Peter. Calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Very formal. Maybe he had in mind the prophet Jonah. Here's Peter all soaking wet, seaweed wrapped around his head, and smells like fish. And Peter, you remind me of the other Jonah. Look at this, dragging yourself out of the surf. But notice what he asks him here. Instead of, instead of Peter the stone, calls him Simon, son of Jonah. And he questions him three times. Maybe because of the three denials. Maybe, maybe for emphasis. And if you notice, he doesn't ask Peter, are you going to serve me now? He doesn't ask Peter, um, 
Are you going to admit you know me now? He doesn't ask Peter, um, are you going to reconsecrate yourself now to this ministry that I called you to? What's he asking? Do you love me? See, it's a little bit more, it hits a little closer to home, doesn't it? For the Lord to ask him that. Okay? Doesn't, doesn't ask Peter, all right, Peter, you denied me. When are you going to get back to it here? You tried fishing again, not going out so, going so well for you. Are you going to come back and work the ministry now with us? No. He wants to know, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him, do you love me more than these? And it's, it's a subject of a little debate, what the Lord meant by that. Do you love me more than these other disciples do? After all, you're the one who said you would lay down your life for me. Or does he mean, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Or maybe he means, do you love me more than you love going fishing, all these boats and nets and things? Scholars have different opinions on it. For me, the most important thing is that the Lord is, is asking him one of those comparison questions. Do you love me more than? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in the original Greek, there's two different words for love there. And there's even some debate about if that's significant or not. I always thought it was significant, the Lord using the, the, the form of love in Greek for agape. That's called agape. It's, and Peter replying with more of the friendship kind of love, I phileo you, you know. And if you've been around Bible teaching much, you, you may re- remember how that goes. Because three times the Lord, or th- two times the Lord asks him about, and uses the word agape, and the third time he comes down and says, do you use the euphleo? That's the, kind of the friendship, brotherly love. And whether that's significant or not is, is maybe important. But, but what's more important here is this is the Lord restoring Peter, after a a period or a disappointment or a, a, a time where the, where Peter is feeling like he failed and disappointed the Lord. Now Jesus wasn't surprised that Peter denied him, was he? He predicted it. Still, this is something for Peter to deal with, isn't it? And maybe us. So he doesn't ask him, will you serve me? He doesn't ask him, will you die for me? Rather, do you love me? But then he would indeed eventually die for the Lord, wouldn't he? We know this from from church history, and we know this from Jesus' own prediction a few verses later. But notice in in this passage here, 15 through 17, he asked me, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs, the little ones, feed them. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now Peter is grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, one of the things that he said way back when he first met Peter, follow me. So, the question that the Lord has for Peter, do you love me, is followed up with, then follow me. And this is what we call the restoration. Peter is being restored to fellowship, being restored to service, being restored to a right relationship with the Lord. And notice something here. Jesus' concern is not just for Peter, but rather it's also his concern for his lambs and his sheep. Who are they? Those are the new believers who would come along, the ones new to the Lord. Maybe they're young in age. Maybe they're older in age, but new believers, the lambs, the sheep, the ones who are a little bit more mature in the Lord. Um, Jesus is concerned for Peter and for the rest of who would come to the Lord under his ministry and the others. So the Lord restores, God restores those who think they've disappointed him. What about Jonah? Was he restored? Back in Jonah. I told you we'd be flipping back and forth a little bit. So Jonah is in the fish, whale, whatever it was, Loch Ness Monster. And then Jonah... Uh, Jonah's praying, chapter 2, the end, of the, ver- the end of the chapter, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. A lot of the stuff in the Bible is kind of messy, isn't it? But that's where Jonah wound up. We don't know where Jonah got spit out. Maybe the Lord took him back to where he got, first got on the boat, maybe in Joppa. We don't know. It doesn't say. Now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So this time he goes. So the Lord sought out the prophet running away, the reluctant, rebellious prophet. The prophet is restored and finally goes to Nineveh to preach the message that God gave him. And The message is pretty short, shorter than mine, way shorter than Pastor Lou's. One sentence, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah preaches this wonderful message of love and acceptance to Nineveh. No. You can see how this is God's warning to these Gentile, evil, vile, wicked unsaved sinners. And they believe him. Well, it says they believed God. And they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. 
and caused it to proclaim and publish throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works. But what were their works? Their works were the outward response, the visible response to what was happening inside. Then God saw the works that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So this is so far, this is a really good story. And everyone's happy and rejoicing, except for one guy, Jonah. Still not happy. Well, Jonah's upset. He had gone up on a hillside. He wanted to see the fireworks. He wanted to see the destruction rain down on this evil, vile city. And, he, and, and, and we can see from here, from chapter 4 now, the end of the book, that Jonah, the reason why he ran away wasn't because he didn't think God could save him. Because he thought he might. He thought, well, God might save these people. And knowing his own people the way he probably did, how they vacillate Israel, the northern section of Israel, didn't really follow the Lord much after Solomon. A few did. southern part vacillated back and forth between following the Lord and worshiping false gods and idols. Northern kingdom where Jonah was from, didn't, didn't follow the Lord very much. And knowing how his own people were rebellious, and knowing that Assyria, which is the, Nineveh was the capital of, knowing that God was going to use these people to bring judgment on his own people, Jonah's not happy. See, I knew this is what you were going to do, God. I knew you would save these people. That's, the, that's kind of my translation. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled, fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Have you ever felt like that? you ever felt like... like you know what? This just isn't worth it anymore. I've displeased the Lord, but now he's using me anyway, but this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. I didn't think my life was going to turn out like this. Or I didn't think my church was going to turn out like this. I didn't think that this job was going to turn out like this. My relationships were going to turn out like this. I didn't think my kids were going to turn out like this. I didn't think any of this was going to turn out like this. I should just die. You ever felt like that? Jonah did. And he was upset, not because of, of some ongoing failure. He was upset because God created this great revival in a pagan city. Wow. That's saying something about Jonah. And that's saying something about us, too, sometimes. Right? So the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? That's a big question. 
And that's a question for us sometimes. Remember in the beginning I asked, if you ever felt like you disappointed God? And I said, I wasn't asking if you were disappointed in something God did. But sometimes that can lead to doing something that makes you do something that disappoints God. Well, here's these two guys, Peter and Jonah. Each of them, in different ways, were dealing with the unexpected. Or dealing with something that they thought was kind of beneath God. Or they thought was a disappointing way for God to act. Or something that was disappointing. They were disappointed in something God was doing. You ever been there? Jonah's disappointed because these pagans repented and God didn't destroy them. Peter was disappointed because Jesus got led away to a brutal trial and a, and a brutal crucifixion and death and eventual resurrection. But it wasn't some victorious uh, uh, retaking of Jerusalem and casting out the Romans and whatever. Are you ever disappointed in something God is doing? Or maybe you don't know what God is doing and you're just disappointed in general. I don't know. But here's Jonah, chapter 4. So he went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade so he might see what become, might become of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant, made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head, deliver him from his misery. Some kind of a vine with big leaves. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Whatever this was, it grew up in one day. As morning dawned, the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself. It's better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So, Notice God's patient questioning of his prophet. Why did God do that? I mean, it turned out the way God wanted. The Ninevites repented. He didn't bring the disaster on that city. As far as he's, you know, as far as we're concerned, Jonah's done. Go home, Jonah. All right? Why is, do you notice God is still pursuing and seeking and restoring, or trying to, his prophet Jonah. Think he does that for us? God patiently questions Jonah even after his angry response to the Ninevites' repentance. And the book ends with a question mark. One of two books in the Bible ends with a question mark. Ends with a question, kind of a cliffhanger. The Lord said... You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Even here, I think God is giving Jonah some kind of benefit of the doubt. Because was Jonah really having pity on a plant? Probably more likely Jonah is having pity for his own uh, shade, wishing he had those broad leaves to shade him from the sun. But God gives him the benefit of the doubt. You had pity on a plant. The plant grew up and it died, you know, one day. And, verse 11, 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? And that's the question. And that question's been hanging in the air for over two millennia, two, almost 3,000 now, 2,800 years or so. And it's a question for us. When you consider people that you think should just go away, people that should just stop their evil ways, people that you think are too far gone, or people that you are really disappointed in, or people that you're afraid of. Do you think the Lord should have pity on them? Did he have pity on us? He did, didn't he? So we see here God's compassion and mercy, even on these false God-worshipping, vile, evil, violent, wicked Assyrians. And he says, 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. I've always assumed that meant toddlers. And what's the population of a city if they've got 120,000 kids three and under, say, roughly? 600,000? Million? Whatever it is, it's a lot. Even if it's 120,000, did you know? That's more than what's in Woodbridge Township. Population of Woodbridge Township with all the ten towns, Island and Keysby and all the rest of them, is, last time I checked, was about 95,000. Might be, give or take, a few. Th- I forget, was going to check yesterday and I forgot. 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. This is some big cosmopolitan city. And Jonah was disappointed that he didn't get to see the fireworks. The fire and brimstone, the destruction, the earthquake, whatever it was going to be. He wanted to see that mushroom cloud, man. But he didn't get to see it. And now these people are going to survive. And now these people are going to go on to another generation because the Lord has, repent, has relented from the disaster he was going to bring on them. And some of those little toddlers running around the streets when he was preaching, some of them are going to grow up and become soldiers. And some of them are going to grow up and have their own kids. And those kids, 722 B.C., Assyria conquered Israel. About 70 years later, roughly. 75 years. That's about from now back to, say, the Korean War. And Jonah's thinking, man, this all could have... He didn't live to see that. The people in Israel at the time, what do you think they thought? Boy, if Jonah hadn't gone there and God wiped them out, we wouldn't be dealing with them now. I used to like a lot of science fiction, and some of that deals with time travel. And one of the one of the themes that comes up is, you know, if you could go back in time and and murder the the guy who was responsible for some atrocity, like Adolf Hitler or whatever, you know, and you can wrap yourself up in circles, and you know, it obviously is silly and and fictional. But what if Jonah hadn't? What what if the Ninevites hadn't repented? Well, God is in control of it all. And we don't need to worry about those sorts of things. God would have, if he had destroyed Assyria, then it would have been another country he would have used to bring judgment to Israel. The point for us is, is understanding God's compassion and mercy, even for those 
that do we dare say that maybe aren't worthy of his compassion and mercy? Do you ever feel like that? Well, Nineveh repented and went on. And the book of Jonah ends with kind of a cliffhanger. And I think that's on purpose because the Lord is asking us something. Shouldn't I have mercy on these people? They repented. They believed God. Didn't say they believed Jonah. They believed God. So the Lord restores those who think they've disappointed him, just like he restored Jonah. And he restored Peter. Peter went on, and his ministry, read the book of Acts, his ministry to um, to on the day of Pentecost and, and as kind of the, the leader of the disciples and, and the beginnings of, of the church after Jesus went back to heaven and, and the Holy Spirit came and the people were filled with the Holy Spirit and, and there was great revival and then there was great persecution. And Peter's right there in the middle of it all. And by the time we get to Acts, if you read, flip forward a little bit to Acts chapter... And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 581. So, remember where Jonah got, caught the ship going to Tarshish? Coastal city of Joppa. And here we find Acts 10. Peter, due to a circumstance where he was brought to the, the, the house of, of a woman who died, who was a godly woman, and Peter, by the Lord's power, raised this woman from the dead. Now, Peter's quite the guy in Joppa. Peter's in Joppa now. Joppa sound familiar? Joppa, where... Jonah caught the ship going west. Well, it turns out, chapter 10 of Acts, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid. He said, what is it, Lord? Well, this angel comes and says, your prayers and your alms have come up as for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. And he explained all these things to them. He sent them to Joppa. Now, Little details in the text help us sometimes make, uh, make connections and also um, they lend credence to the story. A tanner, if you know what a tanner is, Peter is staying with this guy Simon the tanner and his house is by the sea. All of this makes sense. A tanner is one who cures animal hides and makes them supple, makes them into leather. If you just took an animal hide and laid it out in the sun, it would get stiff and dry and crack, and it wouldn't be of any value. But there's a process, and I don't really even know anything about it. There's, today, we're sure we use all kinds of synthetic chemicals. 
Back then, it involved a lot of really strong-smelling chemicals, whatever they were, and they had to be boiled, and there was a process, and it stank, and it stank, and it stank really bad. So for Simon the Tanner to have his house by the sea makes a lot of sense because that's where the breezes would kind of blow all that smelly smell out to the ocean or away, no matter what. Um, so Peter's staying with Simon the Tanner, and it says the next day they're on the journey, drew near the city. Peter went up on the household to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. And while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet at the four corners descending to him and letting down to the earth. It, in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So Peter's up on the roof of this house, flat top roof, if you can imagine, maybe a little railing around the edge, maybe a little courtyard up, up there. And that makes sense. Because if Simon the Tanner is boiling animal skins in the first floor, he wants to be up on the second floor, up on the roof, because it stank. But I bet the rent was cheap. Anyway, um, Peter's up there, and he sees this vision. Big sheet and all kinds of animals in it, wild bees, creeping things, birds of the air. Whatever these were, these weren't kosher. And Peter said, verse 14, but Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him a second time, what God has cleansed you must not call common. This is done three times. Does three sound familiar by now? Okay. God's getting his attention again. Peter, the brash, impetuous, boastful Peter who would go with you to the death and then denied the Lord. And then was gently restored by the Lord, is now a big leader in the church. You don't see Peter boasting a lot much after that incident. But his ministry was so rich. And here the Lord uses him again. Just like when Jonah left Joppa, and that resulted in some Gentile believers, now we have Cornelius showing up, or some of his servants actually. And these are Gentiles. He's a Roman centurion. All right? He's an official. And in that day and in that age, Rome was, was a strong, military, conquering, occupying force. And depending on who your leader was for your area, you either had it pretty good or you had it pretty bad. Cornelius was a God worshiper. We don't know how that came about. Maybe he learned of the God of the Jews when he was posted to this backwater country. Maybe he was already somehow uh, aware of the God of Israel. We don't know. It doesn't say. But whatever the case, he was devout, and he feared God with all his household. But he's a Gentile. And that's a problem. Because in the Jewish mind... Even in the early church, this was a big question. Just like it was for Jonah. God going to save those people? Not that he can't. But why would he? They're Gentiles. All right? So this is a problem for the early church. But God gets Peter's attention with the three visions, with the, or the, with the vision of the three 
with the with the with the uh, non-kosher food, and this is a problem. It's a big problem for Peter. He's raised. He's a good Jewish man. All right, he would no sooner have bacon than 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 he would eat off the floor. I mean, this was this was a big problem. You want to know what one of the other big problems was for a Jewish man? Going to the house of a Gentile. That was a big problem. But Cornelius is sent a vision, and the next day Peter is getting this vision, and, he, and, and God is telling him, what I have cleansed, don't call unclean. You must not call common, it says. So Peter was wondering what the vision had meant. Then there's a knock on the door. And the men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house, stood before him at the gate, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. So Peter thought about the vision. Now the Holy Spirit speaks to him. Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down to them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. What? You sent Gentiles to me? Now, Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I'm who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, and one who fears God, has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house to hear words from you. Then he invited the men and lodged them. The next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied them. So, um... The following day they enter Caesarea. This is where Cornelius is, and Cornelius is waiting for them. They called together. Now look at Cornelius. He didn't like wait to kind of vet what Peter's going to say and then tell everyone. No, he he calls all together all his relatives and close friends. And when Peter came in, Cornelius fell down and started worshiping him. Now, Peter, lift him up. I'm just a man like you. So take a look. Verse 28. Um, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go uh, to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? As if you didn't know, Peter. But this is, this is what he said. <laughs> so Cornelius begins to tell him the story. Look at this. Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. What? Gentile? Gentile? It's a Roman. Fasting? Praying to our God? Not Saturnalia or Apollo or whatever. It's praying to our God? At the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. What? God hears prayers of Gentiles? So this is probably a bit of a shock to Peter, as it would be for a lot of them. But God's not done here. Um, so he tells him the story. Then Peter opens his mouth, verse 34. In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began in Galilee after the baptism which John preached. 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained to be God, or ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever. So while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now, this was a matter of some astonishment for the Jewish brothers. It's, it's, it's hard for us to relate to. We're, here we are 2,000 some years later, and, and most of us probably are Gentiles. And so we don't take much notice of, of, of the fact, maybe. But this was a matter of some astonishment to the brothers that were... But you've got to know, they, gotta, they had to have remembered what Jesus said to him just before he was ascended back into heaven, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So it's interesting how the Lord, how that pattern actually followed through because the church started in Jerusalem and then the outer region of around Jerusalem, Judea. And then we didn't, we didn't go over it, but, but Samaria... Samaritans were, were, they were sort of Jews, ethnically Jewish, but with a whole lot of the pagan world infiltrating into their culture and customs. The good Jews down in Judea, they kind of looked down their nose at the Samaritans. Yeah, they were, they were like, they were the heretics. They were Jews, yeah, if we have to say they're Jews, yeah, we'll say they're Jews, but they're not really Jews like us. But Jesus said that, and, and sure enough, there was a great revival in Samaria. Now, what do you think they thought about the ends of the world? The Jewish people were scattered all around the Roman Empire. All right, There were synagogues in all the major cities. So maybe some of these Jewish brothers thought when, God's, when Jesus said, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the world. They might have thought, oh yeah, the synagogue in Rome and the synagogue in, in um, the ones down in Egypt and all the other ones up in Asia Minor and all that. So a lot of them probably didn't even consider Gentiles. So it's a lot like Jonah. Now, I don't think a lot of them would have not wanted the Gentiles to be believers, but they just couldn't even fathom it. But here is Peter. I perceive, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him, works righteousness, is accepted by him. So, anyway, well, Peter's still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit fell on all those who believed the word, and those of the circumcision, that's the, the Jewish brothers, uh, who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. 
for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be uh, baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, so then they asked him to stay for a few days. So, here we see this wonderful, great connection of the Lord restoring a prophet, the Lord restoring a disciple. And these are two characters, and there's more in the Bible. And there's more in our time, too, who think they've disappointed God. But notice that God seeks out even those who think they've disappointed him. And God restores those who think they've disappointed him. So what do you do if you think you've disappointed God? Well, let's look at some common things between what what Peter did and, and what Jonah did. For one thing, be humble and repentant. Do we see that in Peter? Yeah? Yeah? Notice Notice the, the questioning, John chapter 21, when Jesus asked him, do you love me? And you can kind of hear Peter's kind of broken-hearted response. No, I love you. But it's not a boastful one, is it? So be humble. Was Jonah humbled? I've never spent that much time inside a fish, but I bet that would be humbling. You know, I can't imagine what kind of facilities they had on the beach there. You know, I'm betting they didn't have showers. That'd be pretty humbling. But be humble and repentant. Were these two guys repentant? Jonah was. I mean, he retained his anger at the end. He wasn't happy. But he repented. Read chapter 2 of Jonah, the the prayer that he prayed while he was in the belly of the whale or the fish or whatever it was. Um, Was Peter repentant? Yeah. Yeah, you see see Peter's response to the Lord. You see his, 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 his humility and his repentance. You see that he returned to the Lord. When Peter jumped in the water off the ship, which direction did he swim? He didn't swim away, he swam towards the Lord. When Jonah was in the belly of the whale, or fish, or whatever it was, he couldn't physically return to the Lord, but spiritually, you read through that prayer, he's returning to the Lord. He's repentant. So be humble and repentant. Also, besides that, in addition to that, Return to fellowship with the Lord. That's a little bit different, maybe a little bit more than just being repentant, more than just being sorry, more than just being humble. See Peter swim. He swam towards the Lord. I'm still impressed by that. That's 100 yards. I'm not a real strong swimmer, so that impresses me. I don't know what stroke he was doing. Return to fellowship with the Lord. What does that mean for you and me? What did it mean to Peter? It meant going back to the Lord. What did it mean for Jonah? It meant praying and, and, and being repentant and being humble. But, but um, for us, what does it mean? 
It means to pray. It means to read the Word of God. It means to be back in fellowship with other believers who love the Lord. And then finally, return to serving the Lord. We see Peter's ministry. We see it all through the book of Acts. A couple of the letters written by Peter towards the end of the New Testament. You see his ministry, how the Lord restored him. If you are humble and if you're repentant, if you return to fellowship with the Lord, then return to serving the Lord. Peter's ministry, Jonah preaching to Nineveh. We see how they they return to the service of the Lord. So, these are things to keep in mind. If we think we've disappointed God, be humble, be repentant, return to fellowship with the Lord, and return to serving the Lord. And that's all I have for you today. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have a closing hymn. Okay. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these lessons to us. We pray that you help us to continue to love you, to love others, and to serve you. In Jesus' name.